0: Hello Boon Army, here we are again, episode 15 of my Storytime with Boone podcast. Thank you for joining me again. Thanks also to all of you that have already subscribed to my other podcast, Set to Go, uh, which we launched last week. It's already looking like a bit of a hit on the old iTunes. And if you've not heard it yet, it's, uh, it's devoted entirely to new, unsigned or upcoming music. So check it out if you get a minute, Set to Go. And thanks, as always, to my friends over at Distorted Productions for helping me to get this podcast together. On this episode, the time I found myself out in Spain with a very badly sunburnt young lad from Salford called Sean Ryder and a bunch of mind-blowingly talented scousers. The night Noel Gallagher auditioned to sing for the Inspiral Carpets at the exact moment that a chapter in world history was unfolding directly above us. And what happened when I caught up with my old mates, EMF, backstage at a festival in 2008? And every week I talk about a song that I've written over the years, I'll explain today what made me write the Clint Boone Experience track Somewhere in Time, that was back in 1996. And the unsigned band that you're going to hear at the end of this episode are a band called Park Avenue, with a track called Devil. OK, let's do it.
1: Story time with Boone. Subscribe now on iTunes.
0: First time the Spiral Carpets ever flew abroad to do a gig right. It was in June 1989, and we travelled to Spain to do a little festival outside near Valencia, and it was a, a weird little hotel sort of place in the middle of nowhere where we did it. Somebody said afterwards it was a, a brothel, right? Now I didn't, I don't know, it, either way, it was, somebody put his gig on, we got paid to do it, we turned up. And a bunch of British bands were there with us, so we had the, the, the inspirals in it, the Pop Guns, Happy Mondays and the Lars were all on the bill. And the bands played right through the night, like a lot of events in Spain. It finished at like 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning, so the Happy Mondays headlined it, went on stage 7am, right? Now late in the afternoon before the gig... Word started spreading around that the Happy Monday's front man, Sean, Sean Ryder, had been asleep in the sun for at least four hours and they'd just left him in the sun. And the temperature was like nothing we'd ever experienced back in England. You know, I'm from Oldham and we'd never had sunshine like this up there. And this fellow's asleep in it from Little Ulton. He's leather, there, his mouth open, flat out, blistering. And they will not wake him up. They thought it was funny. They thought it was funny. And eventually they resuscitated him covered him in all sorts of lotions and creams that people were digging out, put loads of bandages on his legs, and he managed to do the gig despite his injuries. my standout memory of the night, about four o'clock in the morning, we'd done our set by now, and I went up onto the roof of the venue where there was like a little uh, rooftop patio sort of chill-out area. People were smoking and that. And the Lars were up there, just hanging out. They were due to play about an hour or so after. But on the roof, what I saw, it just, something that epitomised not only the, the unique spirit of the Lars, but... Also, in a lot of ways, a unique musical spirit of, of Liverpool, the city. All four members of the band, plus one other kid, who was probably the two managers or something, or Rode, they all had acoustic guitars and they're all playing away in synchronisation with each other, all jamming away. And somebody'd shout out a different chord and they'd all change. And then somebody'd shout out a Bob Marley tune and they'd get on that and then they'd be back on some Beatles or something. It was wonderful. See, I've never seen it before, but just everybody in the camp, you know, in the last camp, could play brilliant acoustic guitar. And I remember thinking at the time, it was like, the, you look at these people and you just think they were born to make music. That, that was in their flesh, blood and bones since day one. I've, I'd never seen it before because all the great musicians that I knew back then at that point, you know, they or we had had to learn our instruments. You, you know, you, you know. But these scousers, man, they were from another planet. This was, it was in the genes and it's something that's stuck with me ever since. And I'm convinced it's a Liverpool thing. I do think, for whatever reason, when it comes to making music to playing them instruments. I do think the Scousers have got some sort of head start on the rest of it. All the manks will be like, oh, no, you're not having that, man. You're out of order, mate. But it is, there's something there, there's something in the water, and there's it? that Mersey thing in it. Check this out now, it? it's four lads from Liverpool. They didn't change the world, but they give us one of the greatest albums of all time. It's the Lars. The night that Noel Gallagher auditioned to sing for the Inspiral Carpets, another event happened which became a tragic and defining moment in world history. It was Wednesday, 21st of December, 1988. Our original singer, Stephen All, had recently left the band and Noel had been a fan of the band for quite some time. We got to know him quite well. Uh, he was coming to a lot of gigs, even when he had a broken leg. He had his leg in plaster, he was on crutches, but he carried on coming to his gigs and I would prop him up at the front on a chair and then he'd come in the dressing room after. His leg was better. By the night he auditioned, he'd fully recovered. And we'd actually had a bit of a giggle about this because we'd heard that he wanted to have a go at singing for us because he was, you know, a keen fan of that. But none of us thought he'd be any good at singing. I was like, not the little fella from Burnage. And Craig was like, yeah, he wants to audition. Little fella at Eyebrow. <laughs> yeah. And anyway, we all liked him, so we thought, let's get him in. And our rehearsal room back then was a little rehearsal and recording studio that I'd set up in uh, Ashton Underline, just outside Manchester. It was in a mill. I might have mentioned it in previous podcasts. And Noel knew a lot of the songs already and uh, he even had the audacity to criticise one particular song he was singing at the audition. We had a song called Whiskey and while I was singing it, he says, who the fuck wrote this load of shit? And I said, it's, it's me that, it's one of mine This Noel. I'm thinking, you cheeky little bastard, what do you know about songwriting? Look at you, still there, bloody coat on. <laughs> I know, so the performance was, was all right. You know, it was good. But we didn't really think that his voice suited our sound. Our previous singer, Ste, who's now our current singer all these years after again, he had a, a massive voice and we felt that we needed someone with similar lungs to Steve, And ultimately we took on Tom Ingle from another Manchester band called Too Much Texas. But we did keep him all on. We took him on as a, a full-time roadie, full-time helper, pretty much sixth member of the band. He came around the world with us for the next four years or so. But on that night... As we had the audition session with Noel, something was unfolding above us literally, which none of us could ever have imagined. Our rehearsal with Noel had started earlier in the evening. I think Graham picked him up, the as, as guitarist, went picking Noel up in his car, if I remember correctly. And we went through the set a couple of times, and all reading some of the lyrics from our notebooks and other songs he knew really well because he'd been following us for a bit. We finished the session just before midnight, packed everything up, came out of the building, and I got in my car outside the studio, blue Opel Manta, parked on the pavement right outside the mill, and I switched my car radio on. To hear John Peel on Radio 1 ending his show with the words That's it from me, back tomorrow next up the latest news, let's see if there's anything left of Scotland, or words to that effect. Now Ashton Underline where we'd been rehearsing it's on one of the flight paths for planes flying up and down the British Isles and around 7pm that night a plane travelling from Heathrow Airport in London had flown directly above Ashton Underline en route to New York and just a few minutes later as it turned left to head out over the Atlantic A bomb on board the plane exploded and sent the plane crashing down onto the town of Lockerbie. And apparently when Peel had started his show that night at 10 o'clock, after the news about the Lockerbie disaster had broken, Peel had said something like, it seems almost obscene to follow a news bulletin like that with two hours of trivial nonsense. And me telling you this story now on this podcast is by no means me trying to trivialise it at all. It's still... One of the saddest chapters in history, and it for Scotland, for Britain, for America, and obviously for the families of uh, all those involved, a very sad moment in time that's connected to a moment in time in the Inspirals' career, which is Noel Gallagher auditioning to be our singer. Noel didn't get the singing job that he wanted with the Inspirals, but we did take him on as a roadie and we took him around the world with us for the next four years or more. And eventually, he achieved something that none of us could have dreamed of back then on that dark night in Northern England in uh, December 1988. And here's a very interesting fact for you. Exactly six years to the minute after that rehearsal with the young lad from Burnish took place, an album that he went on to write was sitting at number one in the British album chart. And it was an album that would change the face of popular music. And it was called Definitely Maybe. Back in the early 90s, I got to know the lads out of EMF quite well. In Inspirals did quite a few gigs, mainly festivals where we'd get to bump into the EMF boys, or the MEF, as we used to call them, and we'd get to hang out with them. EMF achieved a massive level of success in a short space of time. They even had a number one single in the USA uh, when they released Unbelievable. It was number three over here, but number one in the USA. That was big news. One of my favourite memories of EMF is uh, a party trick. Which one of them had? I won't tell you which one, but... He used to drop his pants and he'd proudly make an entire lime disappear under his foreskin. That's right, an an entire lime, fresh from the uh, selection of fresh fruit laid on by the promoter in the dressing room, down his foreskin. And we'd stand there in amazement, in awe, if I'm to be dead honest, as this poor, unfortunate piece of fruit slowly reappeared, like a tortoise poking his head out. And then no sooner was he free, they would get launched, he'd put a little lime getting launched and kicked around in the direction of whichever unfortunate musician or roadie would be on the receiving end of its trajectory. <laughs> It'd be unfair for me to tell you which member of EMF it was, but he was the member that could make a lime disappear in his member. It's fair to say that EMF were some of the biggest party animals on the scene back then. They were up there with Happy Mondays on a good night. EMF's keyboard player, Derry, is such a larger-than-life character. Always the life and soul of whichever port or cabin dressing room we find ourselves in at some festival around the world somewhere. And I say keyboard player, it wasn't actually a keyboard player in the sense of Elton John, you know, a Liber Archie, <laughs> you know what I mean? But he basically, he triggered samples from a small MIDI keyboard, which would often find itself being thrown around the stage, like in between, well, Derry triggering samples on it. I managed to keep in touch with the EMF single of these, James Atkin, and with Derry too. And in 2008, me and my wife, Charlie, were invited to the Kendall Calling Festival to do a Mrs. Boone's Tea Party. And it was an amazing event, that one. So it was more like a cake rave, that one. We only did it for a couple of hours, but it was like the Ascienda, but with cupcakes. I was DJing, the wife was selling cakes and that. But we're dead excited to hear that EMF were going to be on site. They got back together to do a gig at Kendall that year. And we thought, brilliant, we'll be able to hook up with them. And I'd heard that Derry wasn't too keen on the idea of a seven-hour drive north from the Forest of Dean, which is where they were all still pretty much based. So he was flying in by helicopter. Apparently he knew a guy that had an helicopter and they are all coming up, or some of them were coming up in this helicopter. And it seemed like a lot of people on site at the festival were quite impressed about Dury's impending arrival. A lot of people were talking about it, Dury's coming in helicopter, isn't he? yeah? Dury's got his chopper out again. <laughs> it won't be the first time. It was a bit like when I saw David Boy arriving at uh, Milton Keynes Bowl in 1983. It was this serious moonlight tour gig and I was down there for that and there was like 65,000 people looking skywards as boys' helicopter circled above us all like that. You could see him waving like that. Anyway, Derry's arrival at Kendall reminded me of that, but, but it was a smaller helicopter and there wasn't as many people watching it. And we also saw this helicopter come and land on the other side of the road, like in a field behind the stage and that. And he was still late, One not he, was still there for the gig. And he was immediately, like, all the road crew gathered around the helicopter, chaperoning him off to the stage that they were playing at. So we didn't get to see Derry or the, the rest of the band until later that night. They'd played the gig, and we're all backstage in one of these after-show party tents or whatever. And eventually we found Derry, who was by now was completely off his tits. And he introduces some of his mates and some of the band were they're obviously in roaders and that? And there was one bloke there, this bloke, right? He's giving it the old big fish, little fish, big fish, little and I'm thinking it must be a roadie with the band. Anyway, he had a glass eye and he kept pulling it out, right? Pulling it out of his eye socket and putting his eye in his mouth like that and dancing. So it looked like his mouth was looking at you. It was all a bit fucking weird, really, I'm being dead honest with you. And, and he's there chatting to Charlie, my wife, and I could hear her shouting, do I fuck fuck told you your highball?" And eventually I got talking to Derry about his uh, David Bowie-style arrival earlier and saying how impressive it was and all that. And I asked him how much it costs to come in a helicopter. And he said, it didn't really cost a lot really. I just paid for the fuel and that. And I'm looking over and the guy with eyes, he's got his eyeball in his mouth again, like chatting to wife whoever da- dancing. And I said to Derry, he's having a good time, isn't he? And Derry says, I said, your mate over there dancing with his glass eye and his pint. And Derry says, that's my mate, Steve. I said, is he a road? And he said, no, he's, he's, a, he's the chap that owns the helicopter that I've come up in. And I said, no, oh, that's nice, he's come along for the ride as well. I said, where's the pilot then? Is he getting his head down or something? And Darius said, what do you mean? I said, the, the pilot, the helicopter pilot, is he, is he gone off for an early night, That ready for the, the flight back and that? And Darius said, no, he's the pilot. I said, what, he, with, with his eye in his mouth? And he says, yeah, he owns the helicopter and he's the pilot. And I'm thinking party boy over there flies the helicopter. He said, Darius said, yeah, he's a top geezer. He said, if you want, he'll take you up in the helicopter. And I'm like, I'm all right. Cheers. I said, Dirty, I'm all right. <laughs> unbelievable.
1: You're unbelievable. <gasps>
0: On every episode of Storytime in Boone, I like to talk about a particular song that I've written and uh, tell you how it came about. So today I'm going to talk about a song called Somewhere in Time. I wrote it in 1996 and it eventually appeared as the penultimate track on the Clint Boone Experience uh, second album, Life in Transition, which came out in uh, 1999. This particular song came from a, a pretty dark place, really. I'd been signing on since the summer of 1995 because when the Inspiral split in uh, spring of 1995, I, I lost all my income. Um, the inspiration I was disbanded amicably in March of ninety five and I was receiving income support from then on from the government. And at the time I found it very hard and I felt too embarrassed to admit, you know, that I was struggling financially and spiritually they are. But in hindsight it's an experience I'm really glad that I went through because not only did it lay the foundation for the next part of my career and everything that I've done today, but it also made me more grounded and it gave me a taste of the real world, you know, after seven or eight years of swanning around the world being a bit of a pop star and all that. It's like back to reality. My second child, Max Presley, was about a year old at the time and my eldest, my daughter, Harley Love, was three. So they were mouths to feed and I was receiving various benefits including free milk tokens to help things along. And one of the toughest bits about that period was having to queue up in the local village supermarket where I'd signed autographs almost on a daily basis for shoppers and staff for the last few years and I'd be queuing up with my milk tokens hidden in my pocket till the very last minute, you know, so I could just get them out for the cashier because I didn't want the neighbours to realise my situation. You know, I was, I was on my arse and I, I just wasn't very proud of it. I understood even then that hundreds of thousands of people have to live like that for years on end for reasons beyond their control. But for me, the, the extremes of playing Glastonbury and doing Top of the Pops one minute and then having to sign on within months, it was a very profound experience and powerful experience that I did not relish for one minute. And to make things even more surreal, Dean Sparrow's former roadie my former sidekick, Noel Gallagher, who I talked about earlier, was fast becoming one of the country's new cultural icons. And his face was on all these magazines and newspapers in the uh, supermarket and his songs were blasting out of the PA system. Completely weird. But during that period, like 96, 97, I started going to London every couple of weeks. I was writing songs all the time. So I was having meetings in London, trying to get things moving again, meeting record labels meeting publishers, playing my new songs to people with the view to uh, get some new solo music out there. That was the idea. And, uh, so I was constantly writing and recording uh, throughout the time. And a lot of the songs that I wrote back then, have got a common thread running through them, which is all this this self-belief that one day, you know, I'll get through this dark patch and get back on top and all that. So the songs had titles like, You Can't Keep a Good Man Down, Climbing Back Inside the Dream, uh, Life in Transition. And, and it was on one of my drives back from London in 1996, that the, the lyrics for Somewhere in Time, started flowing. And the opening verse, driving north again uh, in a long shadow fast lane of a blood red sun, it refers to the view that I saw in my rear view mirror as they headed up the M1 past Nottingham and Sheffield. There was this unbelievable sunset and the sky was all crisscrossed with all these trails from the aeroplanes. They call them vapour trails and it was all reflected in the sunlight you off in the sunset and that's where the line beaten and scarred, broken horizon. That comes from that that image. And the title of the song was nicked from a, a 1980 film starring Christopher Reeve. And it's about a man who, he works out a way of travelling back in time so that he can meet this woman uh, from the early 1900s who he's, uh, he's seen a photograph of her in the hotel reception area. He falls in love, he's in the modern day, and he finds a way of getting back to it. It's a brilliant film, I love it. And the song's main chorus lyric, We'll Live Again, We'll Live Again Someday, it's a reference both to to you know life after death, and the simple theme of me getting back where I felt I belonged to be, on a personal basis. I think probably the darkest line in the song is, um, A man, look at these boots i mean, Were they ever made for walking backwards? Slowly. It's written from the point of view of a spirit looking down at his own corpse and commenting on the fact that it's no wonder this bugger didn't get anywhere, because he often made things harder for himself to succeed to the point where even his boots slowed him down. I know, pretty heavy shit, man. You know what I mean? But that was, this was all going on in my head. And because of my daughter, Arlie Love, she was often with me through the daytime, I'd take her up with me into my, my little studio in the loft, and uh, while I was working, she'd sit on the floor behind me playing with the toys and that, when I sat recording my songs. And as I was recording the lead vocal for the chorus on Summer in Time, with my headphones on, Arlie was sat on the floor behind me playing, and she couldn't hear the music, but she could hear my voice as I was singing. And as I recorded the chorus vocals, she suddenly shouted out, trying to copy what she thought I was singing. And that little bit to me is, is the highlight of the track, completely spontaneous and unplanned. And I did take it, I sampled it and I used it again towards the end of the song, but it's the point where the entire circle is completed. Live again, oh yeah. this Disadmin- Did this evening Or even been aware of my own destiny The edge of a knife has never been a good place to be little boy Cassius Rudy is now five, he'll be six in June. He was born with a thing called a tongue tie. It's not a serious condition at all. It's usually, it'll correct itself naturally or with sometimes a very minor medical procedure. It's to do with a small piece of skin under your tongue uh, which sometimes can impair the child's speech development slightly. Now Cassius' tongue tie, it's pretty much corrected itself now but it's now led to a new phenomenon that's not previously been recorded by the medical profession. Cassius has developed, uh, let's say, quite colourful language in the last couple of years, partly because of his two older brothers, Oscar 11 and Hector 9. Partly, we think, because of the presence of these institutions like Family Guy and American Dad and uh, Russell Howard's Good News. So we'll hear him using industrial language around the house with his brothers and his friends. I remember pulling him up on it, like, Cassie. are you swearing and again? No, you are. I heard you swearing. And he'd be like, Mum, I didn't swear. It's just my tongue tie. So he's starting to blame his bad language on the fact that he he had a tongue tie. Incredible. I explained in episode one, 15 weeks ago, I explained how Cassius had been sleeping in our bed since the day that he was born and how I'd spent two months or so creating his very own bedroom, decorated entirely in his favourite colour, green, everything's green. And guess what? Yep, he's still not using it. He's still sleeping with us every night, laughing his head off in his sleep, especially in the minutes just before he wakes up, just laughing manically. And when he is asleep, he snuggles into me and he pinches me gently under my arms. It's a, like a, it's a very natural instinct left over from uh, his breastfeeding days. So I've got little bruises under my arms, usually. Not, not that I breastfed him, that, that wasn't, no, I didn't do the breastfeeding. That wasn't my job. I, I was, I did the nappies and that. <laughs> got Mrs. since a brew and that. But he is the happiest kid I've ever met. And he dances from the moment he wakes up until his little body packs in every night, usually around half past ten. He's never had his hair cut. He's got his wonderful, long, blonde hair, wavy hair all the way down to his back. He wanted to buy it for Christmas, right? He said, I want to buy it for Christmas. He's only ever had a a balance bike, a three-wheel scooter, and then more recently, one of those two-wheel fold scooters. And Father Christmas was nice enough to bring him a a really gorgeous, shiny blue bike, five gears and all that. And it looks like those that you can get from Toys R Us for about £129.99, where you can use the uh, click and collect service. You know what I mean? And he's never used it. We sat him on it on Christmas Day. What is it now, April? We sat him on it on Christmas Day, and he's like, I don't like it. I like my scooter. Give it to charity. He actually said, give it to charity. He wasn't even sat on his bike long enough for us to get a photograph of that special moment cast on his first bike. He's like, give it to charity. I'm like, give it to charity? That bike cost, me, that bike cost Father Christmas a lot of money. We'll keep it. You will ride it one day. He takes his beloved scooter everywhere with him. You'll see him like... Leathering it around Media City and so on with one leg sticking up in the side of his head and that. What else does he do? at Mealtimes, right? Mealtimes. He always rearranges his food into the shape of a face before he gets stuck in. And several times a day, this is what I really love about me, he'll come up to me or his mum and he'll say, Dad, can I get you anything? A drink of water maybe? Can I get you something to eat? he like weights on us like that. And like millions of other children around the world, Cassius is very proficient at finding his way around an iPhone and he'll come up to you like, Dad, can I play with your iPhone 6? Mum, can I just borrow your iPhone 5S? Very specific, you know, with these generations of iPhone and all that. Yesterday, he was mitering for his mum's phone. He had been really persistent. I wasn't there, but she told me when I got in. And after a while, she explained that he couldn't have the phone because she said, I'm very busy using it. And he said to his mum, you're a cheeky bugger, young lady. <laughs> but he's ace. And so everybody that meets him immediately picks up on his incredible spirit this week I bumped into an old friend of mine Steve had uh, a book launch in uh, Manchester one evening and my wife Charlie and our little boys were with me and on my way back from taking Cassius to the bathroom as he moonwalked and pirouetted his way through the crowd my old mate Steve who'd never met Cass before and he grabbed me and he looked me straight in the eye and he said Clint don't ever change a single thing about him and I said I'm not planning to brother he's my sunshine Catch the sun. you Okay, that's it for episode 15. hope you've enjoyed it again. If you've not already clicked on the subscribe button on iTunes, please do, and then you'll automatically receive every episode of Storytime with Boone. And it'd be great if you could leave some feedback too. That always helps. Thanks again to Distorted Productions for helping me to make Storytime happen every week. And don't forget, if you're a fan of new, unsigned, or upcoming music, have a listen to my other podcast, which is called Clint Boone's Set to Go. That's set two as in number two, go. It's available now on iTunes. as a free download, episode one out now. And as always, I'll leave you with an unsigned band. This week, a band called Park Avenue. They're one of the first bands to send some of the music to Set To Go. I found them on the Set To Go Twitter page, which is at Set2Go. band called Park Avenue. I knew they're from Manchester, but I didn't realise. They're actually from Stockport. So literally... (laughs) <laughs> they are half a mile away now from where I'm talking to, they're practicing in a as we speak the track I'm going to leave you with is called Devil Send me a few bits of information about the band, they're from Stopworth. four members Rob Morris, lead vocals and guitar Joe Clarkson on lead guitar and backing vocals and Charlie McEwen on bass with Luke Campbell on drums, Park Avenue was originally a solo project created by Rob but after recording a few tracks he decided to put a band together and uh, that happened uh, from December 2015, the Lineup had solidified and Park Avenue became a reality. They described the music as large, atmospheric, anthemic rock infused with the mysterious and the strange. Park Avenue's influences include Muse, U2, Depeche Mode, Oasis, The Killers, Foo Fighters and also and they've got David Bowie, The Goo Goo Dolls and Nickelback and Tears for Fears as well. Ambitions for the future, they say the sky's the limit. We plan on sticking around for a while and we're going to make a mark on the music industry and show everybody what Park Avenue is all about. The track you're about to hear is Devil, uh, inspired by uh, the music on Inception, courtesy of Hans Zimmer and one uh, Johnny Marr. Best place to find the band if you want to follow Park Avenue on social media. They're on Twitter, at theparkav, and on Instagram, at the underscore parkav, and on Facebook, forward slash parkavofficial. All right, I'll leave you with this this week. It's Park Avenue and a track called Devil. See you next week and lots of love to you.
1: Story time with Boone. Subscribe now on iTunes.